Hello and welcome back to Skeptics and Seekers. Uh, this is going to be a supplemental episode. Um, basically, it's going to be my uh, full introduction to our upcoming debate on Saturday uh, about uh, miracles and how we identify them. Also, have there been any such identifications of miracles? Have any miracles happened that we can prove, uh, for example. Um, so this is sort of what uh, the topic that uh, me and David, as well as uh, a host of others, Andrew and, and Matt from the Ask an Atheist Anything podcast, are going to be discussing this Saturday. And um, I'm not going to have enough time in that show to give a full introduction as to my case, as to how I think uh, Christians should go about identifying uh, miracles and, uh, you know, giving a case on, on, in terms of miracle healings, which is the topic that's important to the skeptic um, that we'll be discussing, are there any actual examples of, of miracle healings that could work and that sort of thing? What do we make of those? Um, so in the first place, I think it's important um, in terms of how we identify miracles. My sort of unique take, um, at least as far as I've been able to see in my own research over the past 10 years and that sort of thing is, Look, how, how does, uh, you know, in debates it's always, uh, you know, how do we identify supernatural versus natural events? What uh, You'll hear lay skeptics always uh, hammering home, what does it even mean for something to be supernatural? And you get into these definite definitional debates and that sort of thing and, and uh, category, uh, put things into these categories um, that really didn't exist until the radical enlightenment happened and, and atheists capitalized on that to try to dismiss the supernatural before any, without even having to look at the evidence itself. And I wanted to find a way past this. So, so my take, uh, my unique take is, look, when we're assessing supernatural miracles and or miracles of God, uh, whether they're natural or supernatural, I don't care. The lens through which we should look, that, look at that is evaluating it in terms of intelligent design. Are those events designed? by God, um, and can we prove that they were designed by God for whatever purpose? So that's sort of my unique take there, and obviously in, in order to establish the case, uh, we first need to know, well, okay, if we're looking at this through the lens of, of uh, design or intelligent design, how does one go about identifying intelligent design in general? What, what set of criteria could one use to try to identify a, a given event as a designed event by an intelligent agent. And on this front, there, there have been various proposals. Check the sources. I've got the Discovery Institute, and they've got various peer-reviewed sources available for free, you know, like Michael Behe, who's got his irreducible complexity and that sort of thing. Um, but really, I, I like the best. Uh, um, the one I like the best is Dr. William Dembski's. Uh, he's an intelligent design proponent. Uh, well-known in the creation versus evolution department, but he's come up with a set of criteria called specified complexity. Uh, and I think that it's this notion that we can apply um, to miracles because it has a wide range of applicability. It, it can apply, you know, it's applied to cryptography. It's applied to um, intellectual property protection cases. It, it applies to anything. Any, it's, it's a set of general criteria, no matter the context, uh, where you can identify an intelligent designer is, is present or intelligent design is present in the event's occurrence. And this is totally apart from the creation versus evolution debate. P pretend Bill Dembski is totally out to lunch and wrong and naturalistic evolution is true, intelligent design theory is totally false. 
when it comes to the biological issue of creation versus evolution. Who cares? Dembski's criteria of specified complexity is still useful in other contexts, uh, uh, such as evaluating miracles or uh, the other naturalist, fully naturalistic uh, things that we, we apply it to. So that that's sort of the aim of the game. And obviously, you know, we, we sort of, as humans, we can intuitively just know when things are design, intelligently designed. Um, for example, a tourist goes to Mount Rushmore and, and sees those faces. Um, you'd be an absolute fool if you believed that wind erosion uh, was the cause of the current configuration of those rocks on, on that mountain. No, an intelligent designer made that. And we just know that for sure. If we saw a similar structure on Mars uh, or another planet, we would know it was designed. We wouldn't know who the designer was or have any idea about how they made those images, but we would know it's designed naturally. Another thing, John Lennox, uh, Oxford mathematician, he gives the example of, say, let's say you find words uh, scrolled in the sand on the beach. Uh, John loves Sally. This message has a semiotic dimension no one you'd be an absolute fool if you believed it just by ch sheer natural law and chance processes alone uh that message somehow got written in the sand no an intelligent designer wrote it um this is just obvious another example um what about um if your name is bob and you were born on january 5th 1981 and one year on your birthday you receive a new car as a present and on the right there in the license plate it says bob 15 1581. Obviously, this was not due to sheer chance, and we all know it. This was designed. They knew the person who gave you the gift knew your name and registered the license plate in that thing, giving your name and your birthday. Uh, one final example before I move on uh, uh, SETI, uh, aliens, uh, the search for extraterrestrial life operates on this intelligent design principle that if we get a certain uh, radio signals uh, that exemplify a certain pattern, we know right away that there are in, there's intelligent life in outer space. Um, and finally, intellectual protect, um, property protection. The Encyclopedia Britannica. Um, they suspected other encyclopedias of paraphrasing their work. Uh, and in order to test this, what they did is they, they put in false articles by about um, made-up people entirely. Um, just to sort of test and see, well, do these mysterious uh, non-existent people show up in the rival encyclopedias? And sure enough, they did. Um, you know, they got sued and, and Encyclopedia Britannica was successful in saying, yeah, they, they intelligently designed fraudulently um, our articles. It, it isn't just random chance that uh, caused them to make up or come up with an article on, a, on the same made-up person exactly as... Encyclopedia Britannica. So th these are obvious cases. They have nothing to do with the creation versus evolution debate. And we can recognize these prove there must have been an intelligent designer. Uh, we just know it. But what Bill Dembski does with his specified complexity is he, he brilliantly uh, comes up with a set of general criteria for why we, we have this automatic knowledge that um, these types of cases do indicate intelligent design as opposed to uh, natural laws or chance uh, being responsible for it. Basically, in terms of intelligent design, so there, for any given phenomenon or event in the world, there are three, a total of three 
types of explanations that we're aware of. So the first is regularity, right? That's so it, it's an it's an event that has a high probability of occurrence because it's it's done through natural law. So natural selection is a natural law. The law of gravity is a natural law. The, these would be examples. Uh, my my pen falls to the ground. There's a law of gravity. Uh, so it's it's a necessity. It, it, there's a high to absolute probability that the pen, if I let go, will drop to the ground. Then there's chance, and this covers things from from low to a medium range probability of occurrence. Um, so this is just random chance, consistent with the laws of nature. But um, yeah, the you know the, this is fair, fairly straightforward. Random events that that just happen by luck, by chance. And then finally, we have design um, via a, an intelligent designer. And, you know, certain events, the Mona Lisa, the coming of the Mona Lisa, for example, that's a designed event. That painting was designed by a painter. Uh, and this is what we call the trichotomy rule, um, where there's only three sets of explanation. And these are the only explanations that uh, possible types of explanations that we're aware of. So. Even if uh, a lay skeptic arrogantly tries to say, well, maybe there's a fourth type of explanation that we just haven't thought of or something like that, uh, you can just dismiss this lay skeptic out of hand because we're not interested in that nonsense. We're, in, we're not interested in mystery options. We're interested in what we can prove and know based, you know, making a, a design inference using inductive or abductive reasoning uh, to come up with the best explanation. And, and that means we go with what we know. There are three types of explanations. So uh, you can just dismiss any kind of fourth mystery option out of hand if uh, a skeptic brings that up. So so yeah, how does, in, in as sort of by way of an or, overview, how does Dembski's specify complexity criteria work? How, how do we rule out regularity and chance to arrive at a design inference? Um, and he, he outlines this in his what he calls his explanatory filter or generic chance elimination argument. And basically, you, you first ask, okay, well, what's the probability of this event, given event, occurring? Is there a high probability of the event occurring? If so, you attribute it to regularity and you move on. Is there, if there's a low, if there's an intermediate or medium probability for the event, you attribute that to chance and you move on. Now, if there's a low or small probability uh, for the event's occurrence, then it could be chance or uh, it could be design. And the additional element that's required is specificity um, or specification. And if you can answer yes to the specification, and so the small probability part is it, it's complex or it's improbable, very improbable to occur. And if it, in addition to that, it's also a specified event, um, well, then that's what warrants you in saying it's an intel making an intelligent design inference. And that's what underlines all of the uh, cases above that I meant that I mentioned in terms of Encyclopedia Britannica or the license plate with Bob and that sort of thing. This is what allows us to go ah, design. An intelligent designer made that happen. And uh, yeah, th this filter is represented basically in a six premise deductive argument um, in Dembski's book. So premise one would be, look, the event in question has or can be proven to have occurred. Obviously, if there's, you have to prove an event uh, exists in order to prove that an explanation is required. If, if nothing's happened, then you don't need to give an explanation for nothing. 
Um, premise two, the event is specified, so that's the specificity criterion. Premise three, if the event is due to chance, then it has a small probability of occurrence. Yep, that's, that's true. Premise number four, specified events of small probability do not occur by chance. Again, inductively true. All of our examples prove this. Um, there's no examples, probably, of uh, specified small probability events that have occurred, that have been proven to occur by chance. Uh, it's always design. Uh, so therefore, we can inductively reason um, they're always going to be by design in that case. Um, it's, it's the best explanation in those cases. Um, premise number five, the event is not due to regularity, um, nor an intermediate probability, uh, nor is it an intermediate, intermediate probability event uh, through random chance. So there, uh, so then we get premise six, the event is, this is the trichotomy rule, so the event is either due to regularity, random chance, or design, therefore this event must be due to design, and that's the overall conclusion. So that. That's how the argument works. Um, now, there is one thing to mention here, because uh, in terms of, well how, well, how does design, is it possible for something to be designed without implying that there's an intelligent designer or agent that's involved in designing this? Maybe, uh, you know, maybe uh, beloved Tara's random universal consciousness, which, which isn't an agent or person, designed these events, or the law of karma, or something like that. Well, no, because once you go through Dembski's explanatory filter, this is correlated to um, intelligent agency through the actualization exclusion specification triad. Um, that's a, a long, fancy way of saying we, we've proven that an intelligent agent has made a choice in this case. So there's been an event that's been actualized, that it's come about, it's happened. And then the exclusion aspect is, this is the, the choice part, right? There's a, num a range of possible options, contingent possible options or things that could happen. And only one of those things has been actualized as opposed to other possible options. Uh, and that op possible option that's been actualized exemplifies specification. It, it, corresponds to a specified pattern in some way and this is boom that that's what allows you to say someone made a choice um, and there's an intelligent agent involved um, think think of it this way there, a rat um, a rat put in a maze uh, if there's only two two if it only takes two turns to escape the maze um, you can't really say that the rat's movements his choices to turn left or right constitutes an intelligent choice uh, or a free will choice directed towards the purpose of, of escaping the maze. Maybe you just got lucky. You just randomly turned left uh, once and right the other time and that was the way to get out of the, the get out of the maze. So a maze in order to some in order for something to be an intelligent design and the rat was purposefully making choices to get out of the maze, it would have to be sufficiently complex you know, say 30 turns, left-right choices, um, and we can see that he's taking the right path each time, no mistakes, and that sort of thing. He, he's got the correct path to get out of the maze memorized. Well, in this case, this, this would be this actualization exclusion specification triad that would prove the rat is acting as an intelligent agent in whatever degree a, a rat can be an intelligent agent. He is 
He's got the specified purpose of escaping the cage. There are various possibilities, 30 times two, 60 different possibilities. Uh, and he's taking the, the one series of path, the one pa uh, path, actualizing the one path uh, that leads perfectly to escape without any errors. So, so yeah, that, that would be intelligent design there. So yeah, let's get into a little bit more detail here. What, okay, so I understand that intelligent agency and design are able to rationally be inferred through what Dembski calls specified complexity. And you've given us some hints as to what that means and that sort of thing. But let's go into more detail now. What, what exactly does specified complexity mean? And basically, in, in a nutshell, it means this. It, look, the, an event has happened that is so improbable, very low probability of occurrence based on natural law or random chance alone, plus the event corresponds to an independently given pattern. Boom, that is what gives you the design inference. So let's look at each of the elements. Um, this is what specified complexity is. So what exactly is specification? What does this criterion entail? And on this front, there are essentially two elements in order to conclude something is specified. In the first place, specification refers to a pattern. A delimited pattern is the technical term. So patterns are delimited uh, by providing a certain specification in terms of giving a description that corresponds to a prescribed event. So think of it this way. Um, when you see an arrow sticking in a tree and it's right smack dab in the middle of a bullseye of a painted target, um, which has been painted on that tree, basically we're saying that the target is what is the specification aspect or provides the specificity. This is what, this is a pattern that is delimited in the tree, right? We can make sense. Oh, it's smack dab center in the middle of the bullseye. This guy must be a great archer. He designed the arrow to go in that precise place because the bullseye is, you're, you're a winner. Uh, if it's further out from the target, um, oh, well, he's okay, at least he hit the target, but, you know, he's kind of far from the center, so he's not, he must not be that great. Um, you know, there's a delimited specification, a context by which we can make sense based on a pattern, a discernible pattern. Um, whereas if, if you see it and it's totally miss, it's up on the tree above the target, totally bypassing the target, this guy sucks. Um, so, so that's what it means for something to be a delimited pattern. But the specification criterion requires more than just a pattern because there are at least two types of patterns. There are specifications, which are the good patterns, but there are bad patterns, which are fabrications. Um, so let's pretend we see that arrow in the middle of the target, but we learned that the target, the arrow was shot first, sorry, the, the arrow was shot first and then the target was painted around it to make it look like, hey, I'm a great archer. So, so obviously that would be a delimited pattern, but it would be a fabrication. It would be bad design. It, it would uh, not. It would be a bad thing uh, to have happen. So, in in order for specification to to apply, you also have to have uh, an element of detachability, is what uh, Dembski calls it. So, this just means that the the delimited pattern is independent of the. Um, of the event itself, so of the event of shooting the arrow or, or and it hitting that place in the tree. Ba basically, um, you know, it's it's the pattern can be discerned independently of the occurrence of the event itself. That 
one has nothing to do with the other. You can have a pattern with or without the given event actually occurring. Um, and this is uh, basically detachability entails two fundamental aspects. Number one is conditional independence. Um, so this is on an epistemic level, right? That there's the probability, having knowledge um, and or lack thereof of the delimited pattern in no way affects the probability of the occurrence of the event conforming to it. The one has nothing to do with, with the other in that sense. And two is tractability. So the event, the event's occurrence, um, you know, shooting the arrow and it hitting the tree in that place, it's it, that event is indeterminate in terms of deriving the pattern. So I can derive my specified pattern, delimited pattern, without the need to observe the event and that sort of thing. So I don't need to see an, an actual arrow shot into a tree before I'm able to delimit uh, the pattern of a target. Uh, no, I've, I've never seen such a thing in my entire life, uh, except for on TV. Um, but I'm perfectly able to envision a target and come up with the delimited pattern of a, of a bullseye and that sort of thing. Whether or not I've, I've actually seen an arrow shot through the bullseye on a, on a target in a tree. Um, so so that's, that's what it means for something to be detachable or for a delimited pattern to be independent um, of an event's occurrence. Um, if you've got these two elements, a delimited pattern that is detachable and or independent, then that means you fulfill the criterion of specification. An event that corresponds to such a specification is called a specified event. And the pattern itself is known as a specification. Pretty straightforward. Uh, hopefully I, I, that made sense to you guys there. And, and think of it this way, right? The pro yeah, no, I think I've explained that. I'm happy with that. So let's move on to the second criterion. And this is the probabilistic uh, probability of occurrence criterion. It's no, Dembski calls it the complexity criterion, or, or otherwise I call, I'm going to be calling it the extraordinariness criterion. Um, you know, you could call it the improbability of occurrence criterion, something like that. And basically we're, we're saying, well, okay, so you've got a specification, but in addition to that, it also has to have a, the event it's, uh, has to have a small probability of occurring. Uh, it has to be complex in this way. And an example of, of um, you know, you'll hear on my favorite, one of my favorite shows of all time, The Mentalist. Uh, he was an atheist or typical lay skeptic in that he, he would say, uh, oh, don't be, don't be a fool. This has nothing to do with God or your, your silly superstitions. Um, you know, improbable things happen all the time. You'll hear this typical lay skeptical talking point. Um, and actually, it's true that that's right. But who cares? That doesn't. That's not what we're talking about. But um, this is exemplified an example. I, in my blog, I give the Shoemaker Levy comment example, and this is apparently crashed into the planet Jupiter on the exact same day, at 25 years to the day of the Apollo 11 moon landing. Um, and based on calculations, um, we I said that it even happened to the very second of that day of the Apollo 11 moon landing, just to make it even more improbable. Um, but yeah, so the, the odds of this are 10 to the power of minus 8. It's, it's 0.00001% chance of this occurrence happening. That is a small, phenomenally small probability. Um, so if we can prove specification, can we prove, does that prove the Shoemaker-Levy 
crashing comet crashing on Jupiter 25 years to the second uh, of the Apollo 11 moon landing was designed or intelligently designed? Um, of course not. No, it's not small enough a probability. Okay, well, what, what does it take? Uh, how complex or how improbable does something have to be? And the answer is, look, it, it depends on the specific context of the event that you're analyzing. It's different in some localized contexts versus others. Uh, so there, there isn't necessarily one si a one-size-fits-all, although um, there are universal probability bounds, which I'll, I'll talk about in a bit. Um, so basically, um, well, why, why is this? Why, why isn't this 0.0001% uh, probability of the Shoemaker-Levy coincidence, uh, why isn't this design? Why isn't this fulfilling the complexity criterion? And in order to understand why this is the case, we need to understand how probabilities work. Um, so straightforward, look, uh, I roll a die, and then what's the probability of my rolling a five uh, when I roll the die once? Well, it's easy, one-sixth. Uh, there are six possible options, um, and the desire I have one desired outcome. So one divided by six, that's the ratio uh, of what we get. It, it, that's the probability, one-sixth. Now, sometimes things get, as more and more factors get involved, uh, things can get, the probability will diminish in that sort of thing in a lot of cases. So um, if I say, well, what is the probability of my rolling a five three times in a row if I roll the dice three times, right? So in that case, you have to go one six times one six times one six, and that equals uh, one divided by 216. There are 216 possible options one specified pattern or desired result that we need to get, rolling five three times. So yeah, the, this, uh, this is the way probability works normally, right? This is the normal probability value. Um, however, things are not always this simple because sometimes we need to take account of the various probabilistic resources that we have at, dis uh, at our disposal in order to achieve a desired outcome. And this is uh, so in math, in statistics, Anthony 6-6 will know about the formula, right? You do 1 minus P, the probability, so 1 sixth or 1 uh, divided by 216 or whatever. And then you do to the power of N, um, which is the factor for the probabilistic resources. And probabilistic resources uh, basically come in two fundamental varieties. They, they're Think of them as opportunities to achieve your... Uh, desired result. How, how many opportunities do you have to get your desired result, whatever that is? And there are two fundamental varieties of probabilistic resource. Uh, the first are obviously replicational resources. You know, how, how many trials or, or replications of a test uh, or an event do you have to gain the desired outcome? Um, so, so let's say I, I, the desired outcome is I want to roll a five. Uh, just one five, or or even three fives in a row, whatever, whatever it is. But instead of just being able to roll the dice once or three times, I get to roll it twenty times. Obviously, that will those are replicational resources that will increase the probability that you will ob obtain a five and get the result that you want. Um, it'll be it'll be greater than one sixth um, because you have so many replicational resources to obtain that desired result. Um, another 
replication, uh, uh, sorry, another probabilistic resource, and this one always, usually gets um, ignored, I find, are specificational resources. So remember specification, right? We specify a desired outcome or uh, desired pa pattern or a desired outcome that we want to get. We want to get the five. Uh, that's our specification. Um, okay, well, what if we multiply that? Uh, what if we add that? What if, okay, it, I can roll a dice 20 times. What's the probability of my rolling a dice 20 times and getting a five or a three? Um, in this case, I have not just one specification, but two specifications. And this can increase the probability depending on how many specification resources you have. So uh, a couple of real world examples. This, this gets em uh, employed in uh, the teleological argument or the fine tuning of the universe argument, right? Um, so replicational resources would be something like the multiverse. What's the probability that uh, a universe would be finely tuned for carbon-based life? Well, the multiverse would add replicational resources. Well, I've got 10 to the power of 500 universes or tries to, to get that desired result, to get the universe designed for life. Uh, specificational resources would be if you say, what if I'm not just specifying carbon-based life? I, I'm trying to predict what's the probability of uh, a universe being finely tuned for carbon-based life or, I don't know, nitrogen-based life or unknown-based life or something like that. The more specifications you add, the more likely it is, the, the more likely the probability uh, will be that the universe is fine-tuned for life, at least you know, one of the, one or more of the specifications you provide. So yeah, that, that's what uh, is important. So this, when it, when you consider a probability relative to all of its available probabilistic resources, this is what allows you to gain what's a, what's called a saturated probability. Uh, and that's what we're looking for. When I'm assessing the probability of a given event, I'm looking at the saturated probability. I want that be less than 50% in order to say, well, it's improbable that this miracle healing would occur or this event would occur. Uh, this is what I'm saying when I say there's a 53.14% a probability that Christianity is true. I'm, I'm trying to, uh, or sorry, there's a 30% probability that um, the resurrection appearance to the 12 would happen naturally. That's a probability value given as a saturated probability. I, I've hypothetically taken into account all of the various probabilistic resources, both replicational and specificational, uh, in coming to that value. So, so yeah, the, the other thing to mention that's important in terms of calculating complexity or, or analyzing and assessing that component of um, our design inference criteria um, is, the, is the context. Are, are you in a... Uh, what type of probability bound are you looking at to deem something as complex? And there, there are local contexts and there are universal contexts. Um, so universal context would, would be obvious. That applies to everything universally, every event that ever takes place in the universe. Anything uh, below that uh, small probability bound, which is sometimes called, which Dembski calls the law of small probability, is statistically impossible to occur. Doesn't matter what event you're talking about, miracles, uh, evolution, um, whatever, anything or multi or um, you know uh, fine tuning for life or whatever. 
Anything that's less than that universal probability bound, impossible to occur by chance, and you say, therefore, if there's specification, it's designed. And there's also local context. So these ones do change based on the specific local context that you're in. So perhaps the um, localized probability bound for assessing the evidence for the resurrection, in particular, I don't know, let's just pretend it's uh, one-third. Uh, anything, if the resurrection appearance to the 12 is less than one-third, it's statistically impossible. Whereas, as we saw with the Shoemaker-Levy, uh, even 10 to the power of minus 8 is possible by chance in that localized context for that specific event. A universal probability bound, Dembski actually calculates this, and he says anything less than 10 to the power of uh, negative 150 is statistically impossible to occur. And I mentioned in the blog how he gets to that. He calculate, he assumes that there's no multiverse in the first place. So that's an assumption you might, many cosmologists or atheists would probably take issue with, but he just assumes that's false for the sake of argument because he sees it as uh, very speculative on the part of skeptics, uh, just desperate to avoid the obvious truth of the fine-tuning argument for God's existence. But nevertheless, uh, yeah, he, he basically gets this absolute universal probability boundary, which constitutes the law of small probability by multiplying the number of particles in the universe, 10 to the power of 80 times um, the number of given events that can occur per second for each uh, particle, which is 10 to the power of 45. Uh, and then he says the length, multiplies that by the length of time during which the universe can sustain these types of uh, events uh, and that sort of thing, which he calculates at 10 to the power of 25 seconds. Multiply that out, it's 10 to the power of 150, and this is what constitutes Dembski's universal probability bound, uh, representing the law of small probability. Anything less than that is, mathematically speaking, impossible to occur. Um, so that everything universally would be co considered complex if it's less than that bound. But uh, the, the point I'm trying to get across here is that's, that's not necessarily the probability bound in every localized context. Different localized contexts can have lower probability bounds depending on a case-by-case -case basis. And, you know, there, there are even um, localized universal bounds. Um, so for, for a local context of miracles, maybe I can come up with a universal probability bound somehow for that, um, whereby always within the context of valuing miracles, anything that has a probability bound of 10 to the power of minus 8 is statistically impossible, as opposed to just coming up with localized probability bounds for each separate miracle separately, right? Like the probability bound for the resurrection is uh, 10 to the power of minus seven, whereas the probability for the Shroud of Turin is 10 to the power of minus five and stuff like that. So th that, you know, there are, there are even further distinctions in this case, but I, th I think keeping it simple, you get it, right? There are universal s small probability bounds and there are localized probability bounds, and it's important to know which you're talking about in the con in terms of the context of the event you're assessing uh, in order to say if something, if a given event is improbable or complex or not. Okay, so that, yeah, with that in place, that is what allows you to get the design inference. That is specified complexity uh, right there, and that gives you intelligent design, basically, if you fulfill these basic elements. I think this is brilliant. Um, Dembski's published these ideas in pure, secular peer-reviewed journals. Um, 
it's uncontroversial, uh, completely uncontroversial, his notions in uh, other scientific fields of study. Um, everyone agrees with him pretty much, um, unless, uh, apart from minor little discrepancies and that sort of thing. But, um, you know, in turn, like, for example, someone would say, well, I don't agree with his universal probability, probability bound calculation. I think inflationary theory is true and that there are, there's a multiverse of eternal cosmological universes and, and bubble universes and stuff like that. Okay, whatever. Uh, you know, and they go after him on the creation versus evolution. They really don't like... This is by far most of the attacks on Dembski are based on the evolution versus creation debate. They don't like him applying this to, bi to the field of biology in particular. Oh well, who cares? Again, we're concerned with miracles here, not not evolution, not disproving evolution. I don't really care about that. Uh, that'll be another show, possibly. But uh, yeah, these criteria work in various fields, Mer whether miracles, uh, in intellectual property protection, cryptography, uh, forensic science. Uh, we we inferred is this an accidental death versus uh, is it intelligent design? Namely, someone murdered him foul, through foul play. Uh, the, these basic fundamental criteria of specified complexity are applied perfectly legitimately and uncontroversially in various fields uh, that are completely accepted by atheists and skeptic by everyone. Um, so, so yeah, I'm, I'm just saying, well, I think we can take these criteria and I can apply them to the issue of miracles. That's my unique contribution. So, yeah, uh, that said, let, let's get, let's move on to looking at miracles specifically. Let's move on from the intelligent design in general and look at what I call G-belief authenticating events, the applying Dembski's design inference criteria to the miracles and signs of God. Um, you know, identifying what I call G-belief authenticating events. And just before I get into that, uh, just a quick addendum note. Um, when I was talking about the, remember how we get from design to intelligent agency, I was talking about the rat uh, making choices. So the actualization, elimination, specialization triad, uh, that refers to not just choice, uh, but purposeful choice or deliberate choice after a, a process of deliberation. And that's what indicates the intelligence. So with the rat, he's making choices. Let's just say he's randomly going through the maze and he somehow gets out of the, the thing. That's just random, even though he's making choices. Where the intelligent design comes in is when he's making deliberate choices or purposeful choices for the purpose of getting out of the maze. That's the actual actualization um, elimination of the various possibilities. You could turn left as opposed to right at any one of those 30 turns, but he's got the specify, specification, the specified purpose of making choices aimed at getting out of the maze. And that's what gives us intelligent design. So, so yeah, uh, let's, let's move on to miracles now. Okay, so when it comes to miracles of God, um, as I said, there, there are various definitions. Um, I myself have my own definitions and that sort of thing. But for our purposes here, when we're talking about miracles, I, I mean very generalized. It doesn't have to be supernatural or natural. I don't care about any of that. I'm just talking about, look, events that are caused either directly or indirectly through God with uh, his positive endorsement for those events for a certain divine purpose. Um, in some way that uh, they are remarkable and they are remarkable events they're not just ordinary mundane events that happen every day 
there's something that uh, allows them to serve as signs and wonders from God. Um, and, and they're demarcated or they're marked out um, or quote-unquote delimited, as uh, uh, Dembski would say uh, in some ways. So, so that's what I mean by miracles. It's, it's, very, it's a very general term. I'm not being specific with it. It's, this is what I'm going for here. Um, and basically in the Bible, God does mir miraculous events for various reasons and purposes, right? He, he does it to test people. He uses miracles to judge uh, nations and people that, have been, that are sinners or living or are sinful. He also, Jesus repeatedly heals people out of compassion. So on compassionate grounds, God has, uh, he likes to heal sick people uh, or heal them from their sin disease. Um, and he does this out of mercy or compassion. Uh, that's his main purpose. But then most importantly, what I'm most interested in is God performs miracles for the purpose of authenticating a religious message uh, that is either true uh, or that God wants human beings to follow to achieve their ultimate purpose in creation. And he uses miracles to authenticate the, the uh, correct religious message from other false and or false religious messages or religious messages that God does not want us to follow. Now in general, when it comes to identifying miracles, how, how have philosophers that have studied miracles traditionally come to say, what are the elements, the essential ingredients that one needs? Well, the first is obviously you need an actualization. So you need an, to prove that the an actual event uh, happened and or that uh, an actual event uh, exists or something like that. Secondly, you need to show that the event in question uh, is unlikely or improbable to occur given the established laws of nature and or random chance. Um, you know, that's the complexity criterion from specified complexity. Finally, uh, the event itself needs to take place within a religious context. Um, as Mike Lacona likes to say, it, a context that is charged with religious significance. Um, so several, you know, Mike Lacona, Gary Habermas, William Lane Craig, Dr. Richard Swinburne, who's written an entire book on this topic of how we identify miracles and what they are, um, have all identified these um, ingre these three basic ingredients ingredients as being necessary to identify an event as being a miracle uh, of God. And you know, obviously, you can sort of see the the threefold the triad there, right? There's Criterion one is the actualization. Ingredient number two is the complexity criterion uh, or the elimination. Uh, and then criterion three, the religious context. That's the provides the specification. So it has all the ingredients needed to argue that there is intelligent design there. Now, in terms of my own personal research, so I'm not so much interested in miracles for various divine purposes such as miracle healings done for compassionate purposes and that sort of thing that's great there are other people out there like craig keener and that who get involved in that and i wish them godspeed um, i'm grateful for all their hard work and i capitalize on their work but for me uh the real game is uh what i call g belief authenticating events so these are miracles that are aimed at the specific purpose of authenticating a religious message 
um, to humanity in terms of the, the, the true religion and or the religion God wants us to follow. And, you know, obviously, G-Belief authenticating events, um, what, what the heck is a G-Belief? Um, well, I steal this from uh, the atheist philosophers like Michael Martin, uh, and I, I attached a link to a skeptical arg ar argument from confusion uh, on infidels.org. But G-Beliefs is basically defined, look, they're, they're matters that would be very beneficial for people on Earth to be knowledgeable of. Um, and included among them, there are things like God's existence and his nature, or the uh, nature and existence of an afterlife, um, or uh, in our case, what the nature of um, humanity's ultimate purpose in creation, i.e., you know, self-actualization self or salvation in a Christian context. Um, but more generally speaking at this point, uh, just how what uh, human beings' ultimate purpose in creation is, and how they can go about achieving it. This is the type of um, miracle that I'm specifically interested in, interested in and have been interested in for the past 10 years. Uh, these, and I call these G-Belief authenticating events. So how do we go about, what, what are the criteria that I give uh, in terms of how we recognize such events? Well, the first is number one, we've got to prove that the event exists and or has occurred in, the, in history. Um, this is obvious. Again, if, the, if you can't prove there is an event, then no event equals nothing to explain. Now, this can get quite complicated. It depends what miracle you're looking at. So uh, there can be various levels of proving that a certain historical event like the resurrection occurred. You got to look at historical criticism of sources, uh, and that involves lower and higher criticism. You have to get through that. Then you have to go through various historical fact uh, criteria, factual criteria um, for establishing, sorry, criteria for establishing historical facts, uh, like the empty tomb or the resurrection appearance to the women or to the Twelve or to the Apostle Paul. With the Shroud of Turin, for example, uh, this, re this required me establishing certain scientific facts. Superficiality of the Shroud's images on three different levels, at the fiber, thread, and uh, fabric levels. Um, the three-dimensional or tri-dimensional aspects of the shroud and stuff like that. So this is what this criterion is about. I, I think it's pretty self-explanatory. Then we get into what I call criterion B for a G-Belief authenticating event. And this is the extraordinariness criterion, or it fulfills the complexity aspect. I'm saying that um, these events, G-Belief authenticating events, at least need to seem to a reasonable person to have been demonstrated to be extraordinary and an extraordinary event. And by the extraordinary event, I mean it can't be explained in terms of ordinary, uh, currently well-known and well-established natural mechanisms and laws. Uh, and this includes random chance in there, operating solely on their own merits without any divine help or special input in, in any direct kind of way. Um, so this is, if, if we can find an event that is extraordinary in this way and would seem so to a reasonable person. So that's sort of a watered down standard right there, right? Um, remember, uh, I'm, not, I'm not looking to prove that it's absolutely warranted or that it definitely is the case that an event is, an, is extraordinary versus an ordinary natural one. Only that it would seem to a reasonable person. And when I say reasonable person, I mean the legal definition of a reasonable person. So, you know, just the, an average person uh, with average intelligence, average 
wisdom, average due diligence, uh, you know, that average knowledge, stuff like that. Um, the average person. And this is an objective standard that's used in our courts. And, and we we don't have a precise set of necessary and sufficient conditions for it, but we can tell if somebody's a reasonable person in most cases, if someone's being an average person. And the reason I adopt this legal standard as opposed to proof beyond a reasonable doubt as a standard or um, absolute certainty or something like that or, or an absolute standard of objective warrant um, as my standard is because I don't think God operates on that level. I don't have to become a scholar to identify his signs and wonders. Primitive people back in the ancient days were able to, to recognize, hey, that's an extraordinary event. God just stopped the sun or God split the Red Sea. Uh, they didn't they didn't need to go through the conceptual analysis as scholars to figure out that that was indeed an extraordinary event. God operates for the average person is what I'm saying uh, and reveals his truth to the average person, not not just scholars. Um, okay, so, so that said, how would I go about proving that an, an event would seem to be extraordinary to a reasonable person? Um, well, in the first place, I have what I call my uniqueness falsification criterion. And this is judged on a pass-fail basis. Um, essentially, I just say, well, uh, has the is the event unique in, in terms of events like this occurring only in contexts that are extraordinary or, par or paranormal contexts? So, an ex again, extraordinary context, it, it doesn't take place in context that, of well-established or well-known natural mechanisms or laws. Um, so this, this is a wide application. Aliens would qualify under this. Natural anomalies would qualify under this. Uh, ghosts, uh, actions of God, and that sort of thing. All of these would be extraordinary contexts. And yeah, so, so long as an event, a given event is unique to those types of contexts. So with the resurrection appearance uh, to the groups, um, some people can can say, well, there are there are group appearances of ghosts to people, um, and they'll and they'll and then others might try to say, well, no, there are group hallucinations. If if it's the case that there are no group hallucinations in a natural context, like a laboratory experiment or something like that, or uh, U.S. Marines or something who are going through uh, what's called Hell Week. I think it's the Marines uh, or something. Yeah, it's one of the top guys. But yeah, that would be a natural context. If if you're you know you're going through Hell Week in the army and you're starving and you're uh, you're tired and all of that, and and then you have this group simultaneous group appearance of of someone in front of you, that would be a naturalistic context. But if it's a group of people that see ghosts, um, that's an extraordinary context. And therefore, you can't point to ghost appearance, group appearances, to defeat a, the resurrection appearance. Um, I could just say, no, well, that group appearance is true, but it was a demon that appeared to them and tricked them or something like that. So that's what this uniqueness falsification criterion is. Um, if, if an event, if, if uh, like a group appearance appeared happened during hell week in the army that would instantly okay the resurrection group simultaneous appearance of the 12 is not unique uh therefore i can't conclude it's a g belief authentic event it's not extraordinary it it happens in well-known naturalistic context so that's what the first criterion is about um so you have to fulfill this on a pass or fail basis plus 
you have to have an additional reason to think that the event is complex uh, and or improbable to occur. Um, so in the first, uh, or is extraordinary in a way. So the first way to do this is sort of the way that I've been adopting in my Shroud series, for example. I, I, I would say that a reasonable person has reason to doubt that explanations involving solely ordinary natural mechanisms are equally possible or probable explanations for the event. Um, and as I said, th there are at least a couple ways I can think of to try and prove that an event is extraordinary in this way, showing that it's improbable to occur naturally and, or through ordinary natural mechanisms. Um, so number one, the event must be unique, but not just unique, uh, so unique to paranormal context and that sort of thing, but unique despite there having been sufficient opportunity. So that's the key difference here that, that allows me to say, well, it's, it's uh, improbable then. If there's been a sufficient opportunity for the same event to occur, to occur in a naturalistic context, yet it doesn't, then this is a tip-off um, and that I think uh, as a uniqueness criterion shows it's improbable. This event is extraordinary. It, it, it's totally unique, and this applies to the shroud, uh, possibly, right? So in order to evaluate this, you need to look at the various opportunities that exist, the probabilistic resources, as, as Dembski calls them. Uh, and these occur in different things. There are natural opportunities, right? So in the case of the Shroud of Turin, there, if it was direct contact, there have been lots of natural opportunities. Lots of people have been buried in burial shrouds and have... Uh, been buried in varying states, so we would expect there to be another copy uh, and that sort of thing. So you could try to establish that there's been a sufficient opportunity to to test the shroud's uniqueness through naturally through through people being buried, dying in varying states, and being buried in burial shrouds. And yet, only the shroud of Turin has an image of Jesus, and and no other shrouds have images on them. Uh, or you can also look at artificial opportunities, as I call them. So these refer, in the case of the Shroud, things like the experiments trying to duplicate the Shroud's image purposefully by scientists, either in the lab or in the or through field experiments, like Eugenia uh, Natowski uh, did, uh, and that sort of thing. So, so this is the first way you can prove that an event, uh, that it's improbable that an ordinary natural explanation would be responsible for explaining the event. The second way is uh, another way that I've been going through in my Shroud series. It's, I started in, in parts 7 and 8, I covered the traditional painting hypothesis, and in parts 9 and 10 I covered the uh, powder rubbing uh, or dusting techniques and falsified all of them. Remember I looked at three hypotheses. So this this is the famous one that everyone says is the argument from ignorance, but it's, it's not because I'm not just looking at this in isolation, but I basically just say, look, we can prove directly that ordinary natural mechanisms uh, would at least seem to a reasonable person uh, and or a reasonable person to have been demonstrated uh, either practically or theoretically um, to be improbable as explanations or the event has been proven to violate or contravene an established law of nature. Yeah, that would be an extraordinary event if I could prove that. That would be extraordinary and remarkable. Um, it would be what the bi biblical people called a sign or a wonder that would tip you off that something's going on here. So th those are essentially how I would establish extraordinariness. Then finally, criterion C refers to the specificity criterion. And this is the, uh, the event occurs within a context charged with religious significance. 
Um, so I actually go further than most, uh, than everyone that I've seen. So this is a unique contribution for me as well. But in terms of, it, it's not enough for there just to be a religious context, I think. I think there has to be a specific, if it's going to be a G-belief authenticating event, there's a specific type of religious context. So in the first place, number one, the event has to be sufficiently attached uh, to a particular set of G-beliefs or a particular religion. Um, so, in this case, the resurrection of Jesus. This is an event that is essential to the truth of Christianity. And I, I, I can establish that, um, I provide three arguments. Uh, I won't do that here, but I'll, I'll do that in later shows in the new year when I talk about the resurrection. Um, but, yeah, there, there are at least three arguments I provide as to why I can link the, the event of Jesus resurrecting from the dead... Uh, pretend I can prove that, uh, for example, and, and it's definitely an extraordinary event if I can prove that, then I can prove that that event is sufficiently attached to the religion of Christianity. Uh, secondly, I can also prove that that event, atta that attached event, serves to attest or authenticate um, the endorsement of God of that particular religion, of Christianity. And this is the key that tips us off to the purpose or the deliberate choice on God's part. There's a, a tip off. The, this miracle is serving the purpose of saying, hey, this religion's true. Follow me. Um, this is proof that I'm from God, uh, that either Jesus, the religious founder, and or the religion as a whole, and his, therefore his religious message, is, is of God, is endorsed by God. Finally, uh, the final element in terms of Criterion C is finally that event cannot be subsumable by any other set, any other religion. Um, so where does this? And again, this is a unique contribution that nobody else. I've I've never heard other philosophers talk about, but I think it's very important. So if you have something like the Virgin Birth, let's pretend we can prove that yeah, it's extraordinary and beautiful. It's sufficiently attached, and and it's given in the context of trying to prove that Christianity is true. Ah, but Muslims also believe in the virgin birth, uh, for example. So who gets the miracle? What religion does the virgin birth attest, uh, attest to or authenticate? Is it Islam or is it Christianity? And what I've come up with is, so number one, the first religion chronologically to claim a given miracle is the one that gets it by default. So in this case, Christianity gets it unless the subsuming religion, so in this case Islam, uh, can, number one, prove that the event is not mutually ex uh, exclusive or contradictory to their religion. Um, so uh, with Islam, for example, many will argue, and I actually think this fails, So, but many uh, Christian apologists will say, well, the Quran contradicts the, re even Muslims will say this, the contradicts the resurrection miracle. So it can't be subsumed by Islam because um, in Surah 5, Ayah 44, I think, it's, it talks about um, uh, that Jesus, they did, the Jews, they did not crucify him, nor did they kill him, and that sort of thing. So this denies the crucifixion and subsequent resurrection of Jesus. Therefore, it's Islam is mutually exclusive to this particular miracle and cannot subsume the resurrection or something. But in the case of the virgin birth, the Again, there's nothing mutually exclusive or contradictory. The Quran affirms that Jesus was born of a virgin. So, whoops, okay, well, Islam wins this one. But there's also additionally, the subsuming religion must also have an independent G-belief authenticating event. 
uh, in favor of its uh, truth and or endorsement by God. Um, so it's not enough to just, I can just come along and, and make up the religion of Dalism and make it, oh, well, I'm consistent with all, my religion is consistent with all the provable miracles of, of any religions that have G-belief authenticating events. I'll keep it minimal so I won't make any contradictory claims with Muhammad splitting the moon in half or, or something like that. And boom, you, you see, I, I get to to take that religion then, or it's ambiguous as to who, who that miracle counts for. No, the subsuming religion has to prove um, an independent G-belief authenticating event. And finally, three, uh, the subsuming, none of the other, what I call, we'll, we'll get into this later on, but none of the other further clarifying mechanisms apply to the subsuming religion and rule it out from being able to subsume the religion. So, uh, for example, the subsuming religion, one of my, uh, this is getting into my argument, but once I assess the, the various positive G-belief authenticating events and the negative evidences um, for a re given religion, I plug that into, I assign prob normative probability values, uh, and then I plug that into Bayes' theorem to get the overall cumulative total. And I assess, well, Christianity, when I calculated Christianity, I came to a overall probability of 53.14%, and I converted based on that. My, my values have gone up since then. Um, so that was assuming there's a 95% on the negative side and over 95% on the positive side through these G-belief authenticating events. So in terms of subsumability though, the subsuming religion has to have a total probability of over 50% for its overall endorsement or truth um, value in terms of endorsement by God. Uh, and the original religion has a less than 50% uh, along with every other religion that is consistent or claims the given miracle comes out with an overall probability of less than 50%. So this would be an example of a further clarifying mechanism that I can use to adjudicate who gets a, the virgin birth. Uh, yeah, the, these are the three criteria. It's sufficiently attached. It serves to attest or to authenticate the given religion. And the given uh, event is not subsumable to any other religion, any other religion. So it serves to attest and authenticate only the one religion, the original religion or, or that sort of thing. So yeah, that's, that's what a G-Belief authenticating event is, and, and I've sort of linked it. Um, obviously, the now there is one elephant in the room. In terms of complexity, my saturated probabilities, I, so I mentioned I assign probability values and plug those into Bayes' theorem. Um, the values that I assign to these various things are normative probability values, which are perfectly valid. Uh, historians use these all the time and that sort of thing, but uh, or conditional probabilities. But uh, people like Anthony Six Six will take me, like, layman like me, to task because well, those aren't statistical or frequentist probabilities. And the complexity criterion that Dembski gave above for inferring intelligent design requires a frequentist or a statistical probability value. You compare that saturated statistical probability value to the um, relative to the overall probability bound for that specific uh, event, and then you you can tell. Well, is it complex or let or not? Um, it does it fall within the random chance uh, re zone, or does it fall within the rejection region, as 
statisticians call it, where you reject the chance hypothesis. I'm not a mathematician, and, and reasonable persons are not statisticians. We're not in, we don't have PhDs in math. I, I have no way to calculate the probability or likelihood that the resurrection would happen in a frequentist sense, let alone calculate the, the universal and or localized universal probability bound for the resurrection or miracles. I just, I, I don't know how to even get started doing that. And this is why mo most philosophers and historians say, look, calculating these things in a statistical way is just utterly inscrutable. You're an absolute fool if you even try to do something like this. And this is why I go with my approach. I, I assign normative probability values as a reasonable person doing my absolute best to be what I call a real seeker. And it's under this relative uh, subjective um, standard within the ob objective, you know, the loose objective standard of being a legal, reasonable person um, that I'm able to assign values and plug those in to, to make my decision. Uh, and on this basis, I can say, well, I fill the complexity criterion, even though technically speaking, I'm, I'm not, these subjective normative probability values do not fulfill Dembski's criteria, uh, complexity criterion. Um, but yeah, we'll, we'll see how do I get around that. Uh, it, it comes down to, well, God is, is the one who converts my mere subjective normative probability values uh, and, and allows me to use those to not just be rationally justified, but to actually have warrant for the truth of the design inference I'm making and, and saying that this event is complex. And I'll, I'll get more into that in, in a little bit in the next section. But finally, the, the criterion C, that's the specificity aspect, as I said. Uh, I think I've kind of explained that. It, it you know provides a, an event of religious significance for the specific purpose of authenticating a religious message. Okay, so the G belief authenticating event criteria, though, as um, you know, as we've sort of gone over, uh, as I said, uh, on my end, I had four positive evidences. One was subjective, and three were G belief objective G belief authenticating events. Uh, so that comes from the image formation from the Shroud of Turin, the historical evidence for the resurrection appearance to the twelve apostles. Uh, and my vindication prediction argument, which is sort of a, a source of double warrant, where it reuses the G belief authenticating events and, and my properly based belief, and says that those were predicted by Christianity. Now, as David uh, the Skeptic points out in his blog, these G belief authenticating event may be able to uh, let me rationally say, well, yeah, there's there's design here, and these there's intelligent agency and design behind these G-belief authenticating events. But how do we know that's God uh, as opposed to Satan or, or some other supernatural agent or, or any, maybe aliens rose Jesus from the dead and stuff like this? And my criteria in and of themselves don't, don't get you that, right? So this is where it requires an overall contextual argument. And I have my 11 premise deductive argument based on uh, divine undue confusion prevention, as I call it. So what I did here is I basically took a skeptical argument from confusion or argument from biblical defects. It, it's something that David the skeptic on our show brings up constantly as, as though this disproves Christianity, which it doesn't. 
Um, but I recognize the valid inferences. If he was able to persuasively establish his case on that front, then yeah, there, there's potentially a problem with con religious confusion. And this is where I develop my 11 premise argument, saying that God would not allow for undue confusion. So, so number one, God exists, uh, and he and there are certain Ghiblis or God outcomes. And God, uh, the reason I go in premise two, I, I establish God outcomes as opposed to establishing that there are G beliefs um, in terms of my primary interest, is because you'll you'll notice that I'm not even necessarily trying to prove, uh, although I think I can do this if need be, but I'm just removing a skeptical objection by saying God doesn't even need to reveal true religious beliefs. He can use false religious beliefs to achieve a certain outcome, a God outcome that he wants to do. And since God is a free agent, uh, he makes a libertarian free choice to create. Uh, think about it from a Molinistic perspective in terms of overall utility. God is perfect by himself without creation. He doesn't need creation. This is a common Christian claim uh, and, and theistic belief. If there, if there would be more utility uh, in a possible world with God plus creation, then that makes creation necessary. And since, as we'll see in my cosmological argument, we know that creation is not necessary and, and it exists, um, then this proves that the universe, that creation is contingent based on a contingent free will choice of God. Likewise, uh, creation exists. If there was an overall less utility in God in a possible world with God plus creation or plus the universe, then it's logically necessary that God as a maximal great being could not create a universe. Yet here we are, the universe exists, as I said uh, many times now. Therefore, there must be an equal utility in order for this to be a free choice to, for God to exist in a world by himself or for God to create world of him plus the universe. And free will, libertarian free will choices require the fulfillment of five conditions, but one of those is the rationality condition. You have to have reasons or motivated reasons or purposes for why you freely choose to do something. Uh, and, and these serve as external in, internal influences uh, governing your free choice. And so, so this is what I'm saying. As a maximal great being, God has perfect rationality and perfect reasons. When he creates the universe, he has a, a reason as an intelligent agent for doing that. And part of that, those purposes would include an ultimate purpose for humanity because we're a part of creation. We're a part of his overall plan. And as such, God would want us to, as a maximum great being, would want and have to provide humanity a reasonable means for achieving their ultimate purposes in creation. Um, and I argue that, well, one of the most common ways he could do this um, is through divine revelation. Um, now, obviously, divine revelation is a problem, and that's what religions claim to be, right? They reveal their divine disclosures or that sort of thing of what our ultimate purpose is and how we go about achieving it among other among other G beliefs like God exists or God is the God of Israel, blah, blah, blah. Um, but minimally, it, it, it includes this specific God outcome that I'm concerned about in my 11 premise argument. In order to address this G belief chaos problem, as I call it, 
you know, there's religious confusion. Did God reveal Islam? Did he reveal Judaism? I'm, you know, I just, I'm totally ignorant. I don't know. Um, so, so God has to address this. And this is where G belief authenticating events come in. I, I think that God could reveal which religion is true via the use of a clarifying mechanism. A G belief authenticating event is a one way is one type of clarifying mechanism, just as properly basic beliefs and through the internal witness of the um, self-authenticating witness of the Holy Spirit. That's another mechanism God can use to reveal Christianity, not false Islam. Throw Islam in the garbage, Christianity is true. You know, the, these are means, and G-belief authenticating events um, are one such means that God can use to, 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 as a sign to say this one, not that. Uh, or not those, or something like that. Um, so yeah, this is sort of me. Once we get these, and that's where the the other part of my argument comes in, in terms of well, how do we identify G-belief authenticating events, and you know, how do we address clarif the further clarifying mechanisms and all of that? You'll see that in my my document attached in the sources. But the key here is that God would, with the G-belief authenticating event criteria I've given above. I, are, I only argue that a reasonable person could, not even necessarily would, but could hypothetically be rationally justified in inferring divine design for the purpose of authenticating religious message if G-belief authenticating events are provable uh, to exist for a given religion. You know, and that's undergirded by the, the rationality of the design inference from intelligent design and Dembski's specified complexity. I'm a ra I'm rash I am definitely if not warranted, definitely rationally justified as a reasonable person doing my best as a real seeker in believing Christianity is true because I've identified Ghibli authenticating events. Now, if Christianity is not true or uh, is not, or minimally uh, is not conducive for my achieving God outcome one, where my achieving my ultimate purpose in creation, then this constitutes undue confusion. And I put forward in premise 10, I believe it is, that God, as a maximum great being, cannot, logically impossible for him to allow undue confusion. Um, again, undue confusion is defined as confusion that un unjustifiably prevents or um, causes a, a reasonable person trying their best to be a real seeker to uh, miss out on their opportunity to achieve their ultimate purpose in creation before the point of uh, after the point of no return um so so yeah god i'm saying here god is what allows us to convert rational justification uh into warrant because he has an obligation to reveal the truth for us through further clarifying mechanisms or ghibli authenticating events and that sort of thing and he cannot allow me to be unduly confused in that regard to provide Ghibli authenticating events for one religion only, Christianity, and not other religions, and then expect me to know, oh yeah, but he doesn't really want me to follow Christianity. No, that's that's not true. I'm a reasonable person in saying, no, God wants me to follow Christianity, uh, given that there are these Ghibli authenticating events. And if that's not the case, if I'm somehow prevent, because I become a Christian, I'm somehow prevented from achieving my ultimate purpose in creation, then that's on God. That's God's failing in his responsibility as a maximal great being to prevent undue confusion from coming about. Um, so, so yeah, 
that's that's how the argument works. I twist the skeptical argument from confusion, which I think fails because God obviously does allow confusion, and that's good. He's allowed to do that. That's cool. Not a problem at all, skeptics. But what I say is that minimally, God cannot allow undue confusion, and and that's really the key. Um, is there undue confusion or unjustifiable confusion, in the sense that I've I've uh, defined it, um, that I just defined it, versus mere confusion. And mere confusion is okay. I, I mean, no one blames God if I'm confused about quantum physics or something. It's not, it's not God's responsibility to reveal the truth to us. We can discover the truth on our own because God has given us brains and, and the scientific method, and over time, hopefully, we'll, we'll come to understand it better. So yeah, that that's my eleven premise argument. This this is on a theoretical basis. This is how I come to identify certain designed miracles of God or G belief authenticating events um, for the specified purpose of authenticating uh, the correct religious message that God wants me to follow. And it, it's within my eleven premise argument uh, for the overall context. So which is a deductive argument. It's logically valid. Um, I've had it checked by multiple people. No one's objected to it. They said it works. Uh, it's just a matter of, well, are those premises sound? And uh, that's what I'm writing my book on. Um, it'll probably be thousands of pages long, and it'll take me forever, years to do. But, um, yeah, I'm, I'm plugging away. I, I've done the work to warrant those premises and show that they're sound. And I'm working on typing it up so I can share it with you guys for, for free. And, and hopefully you guys will benefit from that when it's done. So yeah, that, that's that's it in terms of the theory. I know that's quite a lot. Um, I, I guess let, let's look quickly at a practical basis. So let's look at various case studies. So I, so I mentioned that there are certain Ghibli authentic events, the Shroud of Turin. I've done podcasts on that, the Vindication Argument. Uh, as well as the historical evidence for the resurrection, which I will be covering in the new year. But the skeptic uh, seems very interested in the case, particular case studies of modern miracle healings. Um, so remember, there, there are various types of miracles that can be uh, proven. Miracle healings, exorcisms from demons, um, those Ghibli authenticating events, like the resurrection of, the, of Jesus from the dead. Uh, Miracles related to religious founders, um, contest, uh, what I call religious contests, or uh, what Craig Keener calls power encounter miracles. So that's where two religion, two or more religions pit off against each other in a contest to see who wins out in a miracle thing. It's kind of like Moses versus the Egyptian uh, sorcerers in the or magicians in the Exodus account, right? They're competing to see who's get the upper hand, and obviously the the one true God, um, the Christian God, comes out on top and destroys the uh, pagan, uh, the pagan filth, the, the pagan deities, the false deities. So, in terms of miracle miracle healings, I think that the pri I personally believe that the primary purpose of these is, if we can prove them at all, is that there's a compassionate design of God. These are these are done for the purpose of divine mercy or compassion. And the reason I say this. Um, I don't think that miracle healings can be provably shown to be G-belief authenticating events, which is what I am interested in when I'm studying it. And, and I, I sort of outline various reasons for this. Um, so, for example, the uniqueness falsification criterion is one area where I'm a little bit iffy about using these for G-belief authenticating events. You know, for uh, 
certainly miraculous healings have been documented to occur to non-Christians. Now, is it true that there are no miracles that take place in an Islamic or another context? Um, so forget about Christians or going or an atheist going to Lords and getting healed. Is there an atheist healing site? Uh, probably not, obviously. But uh, is, is there an equivalent Islam Lords uh, or a Jewish Lords or something? Or uh, what about healings uh, when you go and touch the Western Wall for Jewish people? Do they get miraculously healed there? Are there medically documented healings where someone prays to Allah for for healing or or a Sikh? Um, praise to God, uh, praise to God, their God for healing and gets healed. This is this is a question of, of whether it passes the uniqueness, oops, the uniqueness falsification criterion or not. And this is something that you have to establish if you're going to make a design inference and say something is a G belief authenticating event. And personally, I, I haven't seen too much work on this in the scholarship on, on my own. Um, and from what I've heard, I, I was lucky enough to work with Craig Keener and Nabil Qureshi, uh, Nabil Qureshi before he died, and he, he kind of mentioned that he's aware of some healings in Islam that he thinks might be true, might actually be supernatural cures from God. Uh, yeah, I remember with Nabil Qureshi as, as well, I was talking about the appearance of the Apostle Paul, So, and he said, yeah, there, there are things like that where skeptics uh, see these appearances or something like that. So, yeah, that... If that's true, I, I should look into it more. Maybe if we look into it more, we'll find out that there's not. Because when I studied mer miracle healings, uh, Rukia in Islam, for example, um, I found nothing comparable to what we have with Christianity. But I'm not I'm I'm not at the place where I've studied it too um, exhaustively, where I can confidently say. Yeah, Christianity is unique in terms of miracle healings. I think that more work needs to be done. It, it's poten it, There's potential there. Um, I certainly haven't seen any proof in other miracles, uh, in other religions that are comparable to the same degree of Christianity. But yeah, is, is that just the context? Hey, North, North America is full of intellectual scholars and we've got more abilities than developing nations. So that and were predominantly Christian, so there's more Christian claims and stuff like that. Again, these are factors that need to be ironed out if we're going to say if miracle healings uh, pass the uniqueness falsification criterion test. Secondly, on the religious context aspect, and this is really why the specification, this is why I don't like or don't care about miracle healings in the same way, because I don't think they're G belief authenticating events. And that the stated purpose, well, do they serve to attest a religious message specific? Is that identifiably their purpose? And it's not at all clear uh, in all the accounts I've seen, the context isn't clear. It's ambiguous as to what the purpose is. Is God just healing because he's compassionate? He wants to heal the suffering? Uh, or is he trying to say with Lord's? No, hey, Lords is a Catholic site, therefore I'm implying that Catholicism is the one true religion and or Christianity or something like that. It's just ambiguous to me. So in all the examples I've seen, I, I don't think we can establish that the miracle healings are specifically for the purpose of authenticating a religious message over and against all the other mutually exclusive religious messages. Uh, and that's why I don't care about miracle healings as much as um, others seem to do. Uh, again, a, a valid study. I, I admire Craig Keener's work on on miracles of compassion, miracle healings, 
for the purpose of compassion. I, I think that's a valid area of research. It's just not my pro my personal primary interest. I'm interested in G-belief authenticating events, and, and that's my major focus. So yeah, yeah, in terms of Satan versus God, so this is, in terms of who the agent is, I think we can clearly establish this in terms of G-belief authenticating events, right, through my 11 premise argument, um, that it is, if, if there's a, a religious message that is being uniquely authenticated, that has to, and it deals with uh, our achievement of our ultimate purpose in creation that has to ultimately come about by God uh, or through God um, with God's positive endorsement. Satan can't trick us through G-belief authenticating events. When it comes to miracle healings, on the other hand, it's a little bit more ambiguous. The Bible does seem to indicate that agents of Satan can do supernatural tricks, even healing people in the name of... Uh, Satan's designed purposes. So yeah, I, I again, I'm I'm a bit ambiguous as to well, is it God doing these things or or not? And maybe you might try to to argue God through well, a house divided wouldn't wouldn't stand or something, and and this is associated with demons, uh, exorcisms and healings that's attached to demon exorcisms. But yeah, it's it's I don't know, it's it's just too again, it, it's. There's some ambiguity there that I'm not sure about, um, and, and it makes me iffy. This is why I'm, I, I don't use miracle healings as a, as a reason I come to faith. Um, so, so yeah, th those are sort of my issues there with using miracles as a Ghibli authenticating event, but just so for some possible potential uh, for future study. So number one, with miracle healings, the religious contexts, contests or power encounters, I think, could be G-belief authenticating events, as those do serve to authenticate a given religious message. If more study would be done on authenticating those types of things, and, and Keener has a very brief section on it. Um, again, just it's very brief. Uh, there's, there's no proof or documentation. It's why I didn't quote them in my examples and that sort of thing. But yeah, if these things occur and they're unique to Christianity, Christianity always is the top dog, that would be a G-belief authenticating event. So that might be a fruitful area for investigation. Um, secondly, I also think that there's a different categorization of miracle healings that happen for random from and to random people versus religiously significant persons. So if I could prove a miracle healing of Jesus and prove that that was extraordinary and, and that sort of thing, um, then that would serve to attest the religious truth. If a religious founder and or their uh, authorized emissaries, um, immediate emissaries, claim that, you know, who claim to be inspired by God and have his religious message and that their miracle healings are done to authenticate that, um, and or even it's, it doesn't they don't even have to state that it can be implied if they say they're directly God's agent and have his religious message and then they do things like miracle healings that can be an implied way to say well these miracle healings are serving to authenticate the religious message that they're attached that they're attached to and, and that's a fruitful area of investigation I, I quote Dr. Graham Twelftree who's done a lot of work and he proves that Jesus does there's at least 22 to 24 miracles in the Gospels that are historically proven on a balance of probabilities to be true, um, including Jesus' divine miracle healings and that sort of thing. 
Um, I was most interested in the nature miracles, but those ones weren't really provable. Um, but those would be great things. If the you know like calming the storm and turning water into wine, those would be awesome. But um, yeah, the, there could be fruitful ground in terms of Jesus' miracle healings. Maybe someone could turn the miracle healings of a religious founder into a G-belief authenticating event. Um, finally, even if it's a random person, if you're praying in the name of a religious founder or something, and or you explicitly say in a prayer meeting, you know, God, heal this person as proof that the religion of Islam is true or the proof that Christianity is true, and then that person's healed. Well, that is a context that uh, serves to attest to the truth uh, and or endorsement of that given religion that it's attached to. So, um, yeah, those are, those are the three ways I would transform miracle healings into G-belief authenticating events, or at least potentially into G-belief authenticating events. And um, again, as, as I've seen the scholarship so far, the work, <sighs> there's work to be done before I would be comfortable doing that. Um, but who knows what the future holds. So, um, yeah, yeah. Uh, in terms of miracle healings, though, for compassionate purposes, there are there are thousands and thousands of examples of this, and there are various categories. Uh, you know, I provided videotaped evidence. Um, again, that's rare. Um, there are miracle hearing healing sites, and Lords I think is the most impressive. Um, they have an account of seventy confirmed miracles that are medically inexplicable and medic fully medically documented. I quoted just two of them, including providing secular peer-reviewed uh, science or medical journals documenting these inexplicable proven cures uh, with x-ray photos. You can see it with your own eyes in the, in the sources of the blog. And uh, Craig Keener, he has access to various dozens and dozens, um, possibly I think about as much as three dozen cases where where he has been granted personal access to the medical documents and or still retains them in his possession and is and offers to to give them out if people want to to check out out the details uh and that sort of thing if, if given permission by the the patients um but he had he's seen these medical documentations um and or they're available online so um yeah i actually do lean towards that medical healings uh, do occur, and they are designed by by God. I believe it's God. Um, yeah, there there are definitely some issues that need to be overcome, and, and the skeptic capitalizes on those um, uh, with miracle healings. But but yeah, ch check out the evidence. I mean, there there are phenomenal examples out there, and and, and I'll save those for the for people who want to read the blog and that sort of thing. But um, yeah, ch check if you if you just check out at least one, check out Vitiello Machelli. Uh, I gave the peer-reviewed journal in the scholarly, prestigious, peer-reviewed medical journal the, in the Canadian Medical Association Journal. So, I mean, there's this phenomenal evidence out there. Uh, don't just mindlessly dismiss it as a skeptic. Use your brain and think. Think about these things and, and try to evaluate them. There, there, are, there are a lot of things to me that make me believe that miracle healings uh, are coming, are actually happening. You know, I'll provide some of those cases on this Saturday's show and see what the skeptics make of those. I'll, I'll skip over that for time's sake in, in the introduction here. But um, yeah, that that covers my opening case. Uh, an hour, 30 minutes. Great. So yeah, in, in closing, I hope this intro was helpful. Essentially, what I, what I want to do is I've 
provided a unique contribution in terms of studying, forget about the supernatural versus natural divide and this huge chasm between skeptics and uh, Christians and stuff uh, and, and trying to convince an, a totally hard-hearted, uh, stubborn atheist who just won't believe in the supernatural no matter what the evidence is. Uh, you can't you can't squeeze blood out of a rock and you can't get an irrational atheist to accept the supernatural and and that sort of thing. So why even bother? Um, I found a better way forward. Given that I can prove God exists, we can detect certain events that are designed by God, miracles of God. Whether supernatural, natural, forget that stuff. They are designed, God designed for a particular purpose and we can identify such events and have identified such events. And that's that's the way forward. I think this is how we bridge this this gap by using intelligent design theory to evaluate uh, and to apply to the miracle debate. Um, so yeah, thank you for listening and talk to you guys on Saturday. Bye-bye.